Part Four of Lord Tedrick by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lord Tedrick, Part Four. All previous attempts on the city of Sarlo were made in what seemed to be the only feasible way, crossing the Tegula at Lower Ford, going down its north bank through the gorge to the west branch, and down that to the Sarlo. Fagon was lecturing from a large map, using a sharp stick as a pointer. Tedrick, Skyro, Schillen, and two or three other high-ranking officers were watching and listening. The West Branch flows into Sarlo only forty miles above Sarlo Bay. The city of Sarlo is here, on the north bank of the Sarlo River, right on the bay, and is five-sixths surrounded by water. The Sarlo River is wide and deep, uncrossable against any real opposition. Thus Sarlonian strategy has always been not to make any strong stand anywhere along the West Branch, but to fight delaying actions merely, making their real stand on the north bank of the Sarlo, only a few miles from Sarlo City itself. The Sarlo River, gentlemen, is well called Sarlo Shield. It has never been crossed. "'How do you expect to cross it, then, sire?' Shillin asked. Strictly speaking, we cross it not, but float down it. We cross the Tegula at Upper Ford, not Lower. Upper Ford, sire? Above the terrible gorge of the low Passures? Yea, that gorge, undefended, is passable. Tis rugged, but passage can be made. Once through the gorge, our way to the Lake of the Spiders, from which springs the middle branch of the Sarlo, is clear and open. "'But tis held, sire, that Middle Valley is impassable for troops,' a grizzled captain protested. "'We traverse it none the less, on rafts, at six or seven miles an hour, faster by far than any army can march. But tis enough of explanation. Lord Skyro, attend!' "'I listen, sire.' "'At earliest dawn, take two centuries of axemen and one century of bowmen, with the wagon-load of woodworker supplies about which some of you have wondered. Strike straight north at forced march. Cross the Tegula. Straight north again to the Lake of Spiders and the head of the Middle Branch. Build rafts, large enough and of sufficient number to bear our whole force, strong enough to stand rough usage. The rafts should be done, or nearly, by the time we get there. I hear, sire, and I obey. Tedrick, almost stunned by the novelty and audacity of this, the first amphibian operation in the history of his world, was dubious but willing. And as the map of that operation spread itself in his mind, he grew enthusiastic. We attack, then, not from the south, but from the northeast. Aye, and on solid ground, not across deep water. But to bed, gentlemen, to-morrow the clarions sound before dawn. Dawn came. Skyro and his force struck out. The main army marched away up the north bank of the upper Midvale, which for thirty or forty miles flowed almost directly from the northeast. There, however, it circled sharply to flow from the southeast, and the Lomarians left it, continuing their march across undulating foothills straight for Upper Ford. From the south, the approach to this ford, lying just above, east of, the low Umpasir Mountains, 
at the point where the middle marches mounted a stiff but not too abrupt gradient to become the upper marches, was not too difficult. Nor was the entrapment of most of the Sarlonians and barbarians on watch. The stream, while only knee-deep for the most part, was wide, fast, and rough. The bottom was made up in toto of rounded, mossy, extremely slippery rocks. There were enough men and horses and lines, however, so that the crossing was made without loss. Then, turning three-quarters of a circle, the cavalcade made slow way back down the river, along its north bank, toward the forbidding gorge of the low Ampasseurs. The north bank was different, vastly different, from the south one. Mountains of bare rock, incredible thousands of feet higher than the plateau forming the south bank, towered at the rushing torrent's very edge. What passed for a road was narrow, steep, full of hairpin turns, and fearfully rugged. But this too was passed, by dint of what labor and stress it is not necessary to dwell upon, and as the army debouched out onto the sparsely wooded, gullied, and eroded terrain of the high barren valley, and began to make camp for the night, Tedrick became deeply concerned. Skyro's small force would have left no obvious or lasting traces of its passing, but such blatant disfigurements as these— He glanced at the king, then stared back at the broad, trampled, deep-rutted way the army had come. "'South of the river our tracks do not matter,' he said flatly. "'In the gorge they exist not. But those traces, sire, matter greatly, and are not to be covered or concealed.' "'Tedrick, I approve of you. You begin to think.' Much to the young man's surprise, Fagon smiled broadly. "'How wouldst handle the thing, if decision yours?' "'A couple of fives of bowmen to camp here or nearby, sire,' Tedrick replied promptly, "'to put arrows through any who come to spy.' "'Tis a sound idea, but not enough by half. Here I leave you.' and a full century each of our best scouts and hunters. See to it, my lord captain, that none sees this our trail from here to the lake of the spiders, or, having seen it, lives to tell of the seeing. Tedrick, after selecting his sharpshooters and watching them melt invisibly into the landscape, went down the valley about a mile and hid himself carefully in a cave. These men knew the business in hand a lot better than he did, and he would not interfere. What he was for was to take command in an emergency. If the operation were a complete success, he would have nothing whatever to do. He was still in the cave days later when word came that the launching had begun. Rounding up his guerrillas, he led them at a fast pace to the Lake of the Spiders, around it and to the place where the Lomarian army had been encamped. Four fifty-man rafts were waiting, and Tedrick noticed with surprise that a sort of house had been built on the one lying farthest downstream. This luxury, he learned, was for him and his squire Rallion and their horses and armor. The middle branch was wide and swift, and to Tedrick and his bowmen, landlubbers all, it was terrifyingly rough and boisterous and full of rocks. Tedrick, however, did not stay a landlubber long. He was not the type to sit in idleness when there was something physical to do, something new to learn. And learning to be a riverman was so much easier than learning to be King Fagon's idea of a strategist. Thus, stripped to cloud and moccasins, 
Tedric reveled in pitting his strength and speed at steering oar or pole against the raft's mass and the river's whim. "'A good man, him,' the boss boatman remarked to one of his mates. Then later to Tedric himself. "'Tis shame, lord, that you got to work at this lord business. Wouldst make a damn good riverman in time.' "'My thanks, sir, and twould be more fun. But King Fagon knows best.' But this bend you talk of, what is it? Tis where this middle branch turns a square angle against solid rock to flow west into the Sarlo, the roughest, wickedest bit of water anybody ever tried to run a raft over. Canst try it with me if you like. Twould please me greatly to try. Well short of the bend, each raft was snubbed to the shore and unloaded. When the first one was bare, the boss riverman and a score of his best men stepped aboard. So did Tedric. "'What folly this!' Fagon yelled. "'Tedric, ashore!' "'Canst swim, Lord Tedric?' the boss asked. "'Like an eel,' Tedric admitted modestly, and the riverman turned to the king. "'Twill save you rafts, sire, if he works with us. He's quick as a cat and strong as a bull, and knows more of white water already than half my men.' "'In that case—' Fagon waved his hand, and the first raft took off. Many of the rafts were lost, of course, and Tedric had to swim in icy water more than once, but he loved every exhausting, exciting second of the time. Nor were the broken logs of the wrecked rafts allowed to drift down the river as tell-tales. Each bit was hauled carefully ashore. Below the bend, the middle branch was wide and deep, hence the reloaded rafts had smooth sailing and the Sarlo itself was of course wider and deeper still. In fact, it would have been easily navigable by an eighty-thousand-ton modern liner. The only care now was to avoid discovery, which matter was attended to by several centuries of far-ranging scouts and by scores of rivermen in commandeered boats. Moila's Landing, the predetermined point of debarkation, was a scant fifteen miles from the city of Sarlo. It was scarcely a hamlet, but even so, any one of its few inhabitants could have given the alarm. Hence it was surrounded by an advance force of bowmen and spearmen, and before these soldiers set out, Fagon voiced the orders he was to repeat so often during the following hectic days. "'No burning and no wanton killing! None must know we come, but nonetheless Sarlon is to be a province of Lomar my kingdom.' and I will not have its people or its substance destroyed. To that end, I swear by my royal head, by the throne, by great Losir's heart and brain and liver, that any man of whatever rank who slays or burns without my express permission will be flayed alive and then boiled in oil. Hence the taking of Moila's landing was very quiet, and its people were held under close guard. All that day and all the following night the army rested. Fagon was pretty sure that Tagad knew nothing of the invasion as yet, but it would be idle to hope to get much closer without being discovered. Every mile gained, however, would be worth a century of men. Therefore, long before dawn, the supremely ready Lomarian forces rolled over the screening bluff and marched steadily toward Sarlo. Not fast, note, Thirteen miles is a long haul when there is to be a full-scale battle at the end of it. 
plodding slowly along on mighty Dregor at the king's right. Tedric roused himself from a brown study, and gathering his forces visibly, spoke. "'Knowst I love the Lady Rowan, sire?' Ay, no secret that, nor has been since the fall of Sarpedion. "'Hast permission, then, to ask her to be my wife once back in Lompor?' "'Mayst ask her sooner than that, if you like. We'll be here to-morrow, with the family, the court, and an image of great Losir, for the triumph.' Tedric's mouth dropped open. "'But, sire,' he managed finally, "'how couldst be that sure of success? The armies are too evenly matched.' "'In seeming only. They have no body of horse or foot able to stand against my royal guard.' They have nothing to cope with you and Skyro and your army and weapons. Therefore I have been and am certain of Lomar's success. Well-planned and well-executed ventures do not fail. This has been long in the planning, but only your discovery of the god-metal made it possible of execution. Then, as Tedric glanced involuntarily at his gold-plated armor, Yea, the overlay made it possible for me to live— although I may die this day, being the centre of attack and being weaker and of lesser endurance than I thought. But my life matters not beside the good of Lomar. A king's life is of import only to himself, to his family, and to a few, wouldst be surprised to learn how very few, real friends. Your life matters to me, sire, and to Skyro. I, Tedric, my almost son, that I know art in the forefront of those few I spoke of. And take this not too seriously, for I expect fully to live. But in case I die, remember this. Kings come and kings go. But as long as it holds the loyalty of such as you and Skyro and your kind, the throne of Lomar endures. Taget of Sarlon was not taken completely by surprise. However, he had little enough warning, and so violent and hasty was his mobilization that the Sarlonians were little if any fresher than the Lomarians when they met, a couple of miles outside the city's limit. There is no need to describe in detail the arrangement of the sentries and the legions, nor to dwell at length upon the bloodiness and savagery of the conflict as a whole, nor to pick out individual deeds of daring-do, of heroism, or of cowardice. Of prime interest here is the climactic charge of Lomar's heavy horse, the Royal Guard, that ended it. There was little enough of finesse in that terrific charge, led by glittering Fagon and his two alloy-clad lords. The best their middle-march horses could do in the way of speed was a lumbering canter, but their tremendous masses. A middle-march war-horse was not considered worth saving unless he weighed at least one long ton, added to the weight of man and armor each bore, gave them momentum starkly irresistible. Into and through the ranks of Sarlonian armor the knights of Lomar's old blood crashed, each rising in his stirrups and swinging down with all his might, with sword or axe or hammer, upon whatever luckless wight was nearest at hand. Then reforming a backward smash, then another drive forward, but men were being unhorsed, horses were being hamstrung or killed. Of a sudden King Phagon himself went down. Unhorsed, but not out. His god-metal axe, 
scarcely stoppable by iron, was taking heavy toll. As at signal, every mounted guardsman left his saddle as one, and every guardsman who could move drove toward the flashing golden figure of his king. "'Where now, sire?' Tedric yelled above the clang of iron. "'Tagad's pavilion, of course. Where else?' Fagon yelled back. "'Guardsmen, to me!' Tedric roared. "'Make wedge, as you did at Sarpedion's temple!' And the knights who could not hear him were made by signs to understand what was required. "'To that purple tent we ram Fagon, our king! Elbows in, sire, short thrusts only, and never mind your legs! Now, men, drive!' With three giants in impregnable armor at point, Tedric and Skyro were so close beside and behind the king as almost to be one with him, that flying wedge simply could not be stopped. In little over a minute it reached the pavilion and its terribly surprised owner. Golden tigers seemed to leap and creep as the lustrous silk of the tent rippled in the breeze. Magnificent golden tigers adorned the Sarlonian's purple enameled armor. "'Yield, tag out of Sarlon, or die!' Fagon shouted. "'If I yield, O Fagon of Lomar, what—' Taghead began a conciliatory speech, but even while speaking he whirled a long and heavy sword out from behind him, leaped and struck, so fast that neither Fagon nor either of his lords had time to move. So viciously hard that had Lomar's monarch been wearing anything but super-steel, he would have joined his father's then and there. As it was, however, the fierce-driven heavy blade twisted, bent double, and broke. Fagon's counterstroke was automatic. His axe, swung with all his strength and speed, crashed to helve through iron and bone and brain. And as soon as the heralds with their clarions could spread the news that Fagon had killed Tagad in hand-to-hand -hand combat, all fighting ceased. Captain Skyro, kneel! With the flat of his sword, Fagon struck the steel-clad back a ringing blow. Rise, Lord Skyro of Sarlon! So be it, Skandos one murmured gently, and took up the life and the work of Skandos four. Ultimate catastrophe was five hundred twenty-nine years away. The End of Lord Tedric by E. E. Doc Smith